live there? Good morning. I'm going to see if my mic is working. Hold on. We're good? We're good. Okay, good morning. Let's, let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would be at work by the power of your Holy Spirit in our hearts this morning. That you would work through your word to teach us what you would have us to learn. And that you would change us to be more like Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you can turn uh, with me to two passages this morning. Um, we're going to first be reading from Colossians 3, verses 15 through 17. Colossians 3. And if you could also find Luke 17, verse 11. Put your thumb in there or your bulletin. And uh, we'll be turning back to that in a moment. So Colossians 3, 15 through 17 to begin with. In the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul paints a picture of what the life of a Christian ought to look like. He talks of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. And he explains what these two selves look like. The new self is the result of the new life that we have in Christ. It is characterized by knowledge of the truth, by purity, by love, by patience, and by forgiveness. But as he sums up what the new self looks like, there's a single heart attitude that punctuates his teaching with a rhythmic regularity. That heart attitude is thankfulness. In fact, thankfulness comes with such regularity in Paul's description of the new self that you could well call thankfulness the heartbeat of the new self. Listen to Colossians 3, verses 15 through 17. Paul writes, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Allow me to paraphrase this, this passage. Christ's peace rules in your hearts, so be thankful. Christ's word has enlightened your mind and encouraged your heart. Be thankful. You can speak and you can serve in Jesus' name, so be thankful. And as Paul has written other, elsewhere, in everything, be thankful, for this is God's will for you. Does your life look like that? Does the spiritual heart of your new self go love-dub, love-dub with thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord? Do you really know what it means to be truly thankful to God? What is the heart of thanksgiving? Where does it come from? What keeps it beating? Thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. Before going any further, I'll tell you right now, this sermon is really for me. See, I, I struggle with ungratefulness. That's because self-centeredness is such a core value to my fallen human nature that it's easy for me to lose perspective. And that's just a nice way of saying that it's easy for me to forget who I am and who God is. It's easy for me to forget how utterly dependent I am on Him and how radically He has impacted my life. And to the extent that I forget these things, I put the focus on myself and I lose sight of God's great blessings. And I forget to be thankful. So my her spiritual heartbeat sounds more like a flat line hmm, of death than that healthy, vibrant, rhythmic drumming of thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Can you identify with that? My purpose this morning is to help us refocus our minds on the truth that God is at the center of everything. To remind ourselves that our life is in him, all we are is from him. Every moment we have, every breath we take is sustained by him. All we have, every good and perfect gift, comes from him. Our salvation is in him. Our hope is in him. The love that we share, the righteousness that he imputes to us, the glory that is to be ours, all these things are because of him. And as we contemplate that biblical perspective, we'll see that thanksgiving is central to the gospel, that thanksgiving is a non-negotiable part of what it means to be saved. And I hope we can all see afresh what the heart of thanksgiving is so that we can yield to and cooperate with the Holy Spirit 
as he works to grow truly thankful hearts in each of us. And to do this, I want us to look at this real-life event that Luke records, a miracle that Jesus performed, the healing of the ten lepers. That's uh, in Luke 17, so if you can flip over to there. Luke 17, beginning in verse 11. Jesus did not perform this miracle simply out of compassion for the lepers. He performed this miracle with a purpose of preaching the gospel to his disciples and to the Pharisees and teaching them and us what the heart of thanksgiving is all about. It's a very familiar story. Listen as I read God's word. Luke 17, verse 11. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. It's a simple story, but there's great depth to what it has to teach us about thankfulness. The first and most clear aspect of this story is that its focus is on Jesus. While the Samaritan is remarkable because he's the only one out of the ten who gives thanks, the story first and foremost points to Christ. He's the beginning, the middle, and the end of this story. Jesus goes out to this man's village. Jesus heals him, and Jesus accepts the glory and the thanksgiving. And it is the power of Jesus that makes this a story at all. It's because of Jesus' exercising power over this leper's life that this leper is thankful. In other words, thankfulness is born of the power of God. That's point two on your outline. Thankfulness is born of the power of God. That thankfulness is born of the power of God comes down to two fundamental truths. Number one, it is the power of God that heals, the power of God that cleanses. And number two, it is the sovereign will of God that superintends all things. The power of God superintends all things. And it's only as we recognize these two truths that we can begin to understand where thankfulness comes from and how it comes to be the heartbeat of the new self. So moving now to point one there, under, under thankfulness is born of the power of God. First of all, we see that it is the power of God that heals, the power of God that cleanses. These ten men didn't heal themselves. Jesus healed them, right? That's almost too obvious to point out. But that's the part of the story that's so wonderful and so miraculous. It's the power of Jesus that makes us stop and say, wow. Now Luke records that these ten men had leprosy. Now it may be that they did not have leprosy proper, or what was today called Hansen's disease. In fact, it may have been any number of diseases that afflicted their skin. If we look over in Leviticus 13, uh, we can find that according to Jewish law, a person was considered to have leprosy if he had on the skin of his body a swelling or a scab or a bright spot. And if that spot revealed an infection deeper than the skin, if it revealed raw flesh, or if the hair in the infection was white. It's kind of icky, I know. Uh, in addition, it was required that the priests observe the blemish over a period of two weeks. And if the infection did not improve or was spreading, this is what the law says. As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn, the hair of his head shall be uncovered, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So the stigma of leprosy extended beyond just the physical disfigurement. The leper was considered unclean. He was excluded from the community. In the Jewish mind, this linked the physical uncleanliness of the disease with spiritual uncleanliness. This understanding would have been reinforced by the fact that rites of restoration for a person whose leprosy had, had been healed included guilt offerings and sin offerings. And further reinforcement of this connection 
between spiritual uncleanliness uh, and the physical uh, affliction would have been derived from the fact that some notable victims of leprosy in the Old Testament became infected uh, as a direct result of their own sin. Two examples from the Old Testament. Miriam, Moses' sister, was smitten by God with leprosy after she spoke against Moses in Numbers 12. And King Uzziah was likewise smitten for trying to usurp the priestly role of burning incense in the temple. That's in 2 Chronicles 26. Leprosy, then, was seen as a punishment from God. And in the Jewish mind, a leper was unclean, physically, morally, and spiritually. The understanding would have been that these lepers, or their parents, had committed some grievous sin for them to have been so afflicted. Now, we also know that the Jews believed that only God could forgive sin. Therefore, there was only one way that a person with leprosy could be clean. God needed to do a miracle. In the Jewish mind, the only way for a leper to be cleansed, both physically and spiritually, was by the power of God. Thus, when the lepers were crying out, Jesus, have mercy on us, they were asking for physical healing, yes, but they were ultimately asking for cleansing from sin, for forgiveness. They were asking for something that only God could grant. And guess what? Jesus did it. Luke writes simply, as they were going, they were cleansed. It's a sentence so short you could almost miss it. But here we have the power of God at work. Only the power of God can cleanse. Only the power of God can bring full healing. Only God can forgive sin. Imagine yourself as one of those lepers. Imagine suffering some repulsive form of skin infection. Imagine on top of that you're outcast from the community. You're shunned physically, socially, and spiritually. And suddenly, all of the physical suffering all the reason for shame, you're just wiped away. Your skin is clean. The stigma is removed. You can feel the weight of the, the physical, the psychological, the emotional burdens being lifted off your shoulders. The power of God has swept through your life. Do you think that that reality might be a reason for Thanksgiving? Maybe this is stating the obvious, but it is true nonetheless. Were it not for the power of God at work in their lives, the lepers would have no reason to be thankful. But because of the power of God, these men now have a thousand reasons to be grateful. The cause for, the very source of their thankfulness is the power of God. And this is the first reason that I say this story illustrates that thankfulness is born of the power of God. The second reason that I say this story illustrates that thankfulness is born of the power of God is that this story is an example of the fact that the power of God superintends. Now, Merriam-Webster defines the word superintend as to have or exercise the charge and oversight of, to direct. We see that God superintends, God has charge over, God directs the events of history. This includes the creation of everything that is, the daily operation of the cosmos, and the full arc of the history of man, as well as the detailed events of each of our lives. Why was the leper born at the place and time where he was born? Why wasn't he born in Egypt at the time of, of Joseph? or a couple of days ago over in Stony Brook Hospital? And of all the diseases he could have suffered, why leprosy? And why was Jesus passing between Samaria and Galilee and through that particular village at just the same time these men were there? Why wasn't the leper too sick that day to be out and about in the village? And why didn't Jesus decide to go to the Mets game that day? Our modern minds want to ascribe this to coincidence, to happenstance, right? Random events in a chaotic universe. But our modern way of thinking is completely out of step with the teaching of Scripture. You see, this man's days were all written in God's book long before he was even born. God had a plan for this man. God had a plan to reveal himself and his glory and his gospel to us through this man's situation, through his nationality, through his disease, and through his response to Jesus. God's plan becomes clear as you look at the context within which Jesus healed this man. And we'll see that in a few minutes. Just prior to the healing and just after it, Luke records Jesus teaching his disciples and teaching his Pharisees some very important things. And the healing of this leper becomes the focal point for these teachings. And I'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But the point I want to make here is that the details of this transaction with the lepers were superintended by God with a purpose. It was important for this man to be a leper because his affliction is a type of both sickness and sin, both physical and spiritual death. It was important for him to be a Samaritan, as we'll see, because his being made whole represents 
of God's saving grace transcends man's inability to keep the law. And it was important for this man to respond to Jesus with thanksgiving because Jesus used it to show that the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom of God and the response of faith to that coming, what that looks like. God superintended all of these events. He's in control of every moment. And we know that, but it's a good thing to be reminded. And that's one of the reasons I had us read Psalm 33 this morning. Uh, as we read earlier in the service, Psalm 33, verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. God created everything. Psalm 33 also says, verse 10, The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. So that's telling us God controls the flow of history. We can look elsewhere in the Psalms. For example, in Psalm 139, it gets a little more personal. Psalm 139, 16 says, In your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Scriptures are telling us there that God controls the flow of our lives. So God superintends all things. And how does David respond to this truth in Psalm 33? If you go back to verse 1 and verse 2 of Psalm 33, David says, Sing to joy, uh, sing for joy in the Lord, and give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. David's response to the truth of God's sovereign power is joy and thanksgiving. So the bottom line is this. God had this man, this thankful leper, right where he wanted him, right when he wanted him there, because God was going to use him in a mighty way. He causes all things to work together for good to this man. The reason that God can do this is because he rules over everything, because he superintends the universe. And it is because God worked his plan for this man's life to completion that this man had the ability and the opportunity to be thankful. So I say that this, I say that this man's thankful heart has its deepest roots in God superintending the events of his life. God brought him to the place that he was in physical need so that God would meet him at the point of that need and minister, most importantly, to his spiritual need, raising up in him a thankful heart so that he would be saved. And beyond that, God used this man to teach all the world, including you and me today, what thankfulness is all about. So the first thing we've seen is that thankfulness is born of the power of God. The thankful leper's gratitude was wholly dependent upon God's power in superintending the, the events of his life and upon Jesus' power displayed through a miraculous healing and cleansing. The second main point that this story makes is that thankfulness requires the heartfelt response of man. Thankfulness requires a heartfelt response. That's uh, item number three there on your outline. See, there were ten lepers, all received mercy from Jesus, and that in abundance. All experienced that wow moment, that surge of energy and joy in their, in their hearts as they realized that their lives would never be the same. But only one of them, the Samaritan, made that U-turn and gave glory to God. Only one of them fell at the feet of Jesus and thanked him. Only one received the blessing from Jesus that your faith has made you well. It is this man's response that distinguishes him from his cohort. What do we see in this man's response that teaches us about thankfulness. We see two main human responses that are central to the thankful heart. Number one, the thankful servant of God is alert to the work of God in his life. And number two, the thankful servant of God responds humbly to the work of God in his life. Both of these truths have deep implications regarding Jesus' gospel message. And they also have some very practical implications as to how the thankful heart should view the world and interact with people and events. The first human response to the work of God that is necessary to a thankful heart is to be alert to the work of God. A thankful heart is observant. A thankful heart recognizes that God has wrought a mighty change. Luke records in, in uh, chapter 17, verse 15, that one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back. He saw that he had been healed. Let's not skip over that simple fact. The leper recognized that he had been cleansed. Now you might be sitting there saying, of course these guys noticed they were healed. After all, one moment they were afflicted with these ugly open sores and the next they were gone. But I think Luke wanted his readers to attach more significance to this simple fact that the lepers noticed a miracle. 
And that, I think that because he contrasts this event with the attitude of the Pharisees. Notice what Luke has placed immediately following the story of the lepers. If you look at Luke 17, starting in verse 20, just two verses there, verse 20 and 21, we read, Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Or another way to translate that is, The kingdom of God is within you. Why does Luke quote Jesus saying such a thing immediately after he performed such a visible sign? Wouldn't you have expected Jesus to have said something more like, you've seen me heal these lepers. Can't you see that I'm establishing the kingdom of God right here and right now? Why does Jesus give this somewhat enigmatic, the kingdom of God is within you, right after he healed the lepers? The reason is that Jesus is trying to teach the Pharisees and the disciples and us the proper priorities in God's plan of redemption. He talks about the fact that there are two days of the coming of the Son of Man, two comings of Christ. The first is here, Jesus is telling them. It's in their midst, but it is not what the Pharisees had expected. See, the Pharisees were fixated on externals. They were fixated on the big and the shiny and showy parts of their religion. As Jesus observed elsewhere in Luke, Luke chapter 11, he says, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside you are full of robbery and wickedness. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. With his statement that the kingdom of God is within you, Jesus is again showing them that they have, they have turned everything inside out. See, the folk, Pharisees were focused on the outward signs of obedience, but in their hearts they were cold and dead to God. They were not obedient out of love and thankfulness. They were obedient because they were working to justify themselves. They were obedient because they loved to put on a show for others so that everyone around them would give, give them praise for their goodness. But God is not impressed by our efforts. And God looks not at the outward appearance, but at the heart. First, clean the inside of the dish, Jesus says, so that the outside of it may become clean. Let's deal with the heart issues first then the outward signs of obedience will come. That's why it's so significant that the disease that Jesus heals in this story is leprosy. Leprosy was more than just that physical blemish. It was a symbol of sin and the curse of God. And Jesus removed it. Jesus wiped away the stigma that the Pharisees would have pointed to and said, this man or his parents must have committed a great sin for them to have been so afflicted. To drive his point home even more, Jesus tells that one leper, the one who returned to thank him. Not that he was simply cleansed, as it says in Luke 17, 17, but he uses a different word. He says that he was made well, Luke 17, verse 19, or literally in the Greek, it says that he was saved. That word made well or saved, sozo in the Greek, is used a lot in the New Testament, about 120 times. It's the same word that Paul uses, in fact, in Titus 3, for example, Titus 3, 5, and 6, uh, where Paul writes, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. The cleansing that came to all the lepers was miraculous. But it was external, something that everyone could see. That's the cleansing, the being made well, the being saved came not simply as a result of the elimination of the external blemishes, but rather was a transformation of the heart as a result of faith in God's Son. The problem was that the Pharisees were looking for signs of the coming of the Son of Man on the outside. They should have been looking for signs of rebirth in the inner man. And so the Pharisees were not alert to the work of God. The nine lepers who kept on their way to see the priests, they knew that a physical miracle had occurred, but like the Pharisees, they were fixated on the externals too. They needed to go to the priests to meet the um, requirements of the law. So much so that they didn't even pause to say thank you. They missed the gospel, the good news, that Jesus had come to free sinners. They missed the opportunity not only to be cleansed, 
but to be saved. Neither the, neither the nine nor the Pharisees were truly alert to the work of God. They saw what happened, but their response betrayed their dismissive attitude. They took the miracle for granted. Even though the power of God was evident to them and within them, they did not honor God or give thanks. None of them was aware of the true work of God, and none of them received the blessing from Jesus, your faith has saved you. The one who was saved was the one whose heart was truly alert to the work of God within. So the thankful heart needs to be alert and to value, above all, God's work in the inner man. But secondly, the thankful heart needs to be one that responds humbly to the work of God. In many ways, thankfulness is humility in action. Thankfulness is humility in action. For someone to be truly thankful, they must acknowledge their need. They must acknowledge their inability to meet that need, and they must acknowledge the superior ability of another to meet that need. The central ingredient to all these activities is humility. The leper's actions are a vivid picture of humility in action. If we go back earlier in the story, even before he says thank you, the leper acknowledges his need and his inability to meet that need under his own steam. What does he cry out to Jesus? Jesus, Master, have mercy. In this simple cry, he at once acknowledges Jesus is Lord, and he admits his dependence upon him for help, for healing, and for mercy. Beyond that, the one leper showed his humility by intentionally acknowledging the one who had healed him. Luke reports that the leper, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. This might seem like common sense, right? As we already discussed, a miracle just happened to this man's body. If you look up the word miracle in the, uh, the Camelone Dictionary of Theology, uh, it says, <clears throat> something only God can do. It only makes sense that the leper would give glory to God, right? But the, the human heart is not naturally so humble as to give God the glory. How many lepers were, were healed? Ten. How many do we hear glorifying God with a loud voice? Only one. Only one man stopped to say, God, you are God. You are great. Only you could have done this marvelous thing. Only one man stopped to worship. The evidence that this worship came out of a heart of humility is very graphic. What does it say there in verse 16? It says, he fell on his face at the feet of Jesus. But it's more than just that he assumed that physical position of submission. If we read on in verse 16, we see this other short sentence. And he was a Samaritan. Why is Luke so careful to note this? For a Samaritan to fall at the, uh, at the feet of a Jew was a very significant act. And this has to do with a contentious relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. Many of you may know the origin of the Samaritans can be traced back to the account in 2 Kings in chapter 17, where the king of Assyria brought men from uh, Babylon to settle in Samaria after he had carried the Israelites away into exile. There, uh, these people from Babylon intermarried with Israelites who remained in the land. So the Jews considered them half-breeds and therefore not true heirs to the promise of Abraham. They considered the Samaritans as unclean, as no better than dogs. On the other side, you have the Samaritans. Now they claim to be descendants of those who remained in the land during the exile. Thus they claim theirs was the true religion of the ancient Israelites preserved without interruption from ancient times. In fact, I found out that the name Samaritan is claimed to be derived from the Hebrew term shamarim, meaning keepers or keepers of the law or observant ones. So for a Samaritan, one who was brought up believing that, that he belonged to the true people of God, the true keepers of the law, to fall on, the face, uh, on his face at the feet of a Jew, one who felt that the Samaritans had betrayed the one true faith, and were no better than dogs, this was a really big deal. You see, at that moment, six centuries of tradition of cultural, religious, and ethnic superiority were set aside, and the Samaritan humbled himself at the feet of a Jew for the express purpose of saying, thank you. At that moment, the leper acknowledged that his need had been met by Jesus, that Jesus had given him something that he could not have possibly gotten by his own efforts, and he humbled himself 
before his God. This setting aside of one's perceived status to say thank you, this recognition of a need that runs deeper than anything that can be met by one's own strength or ingenuity, and this acknowledging of Jesus as Lord and God as the source of healing cuts right to the heart of the gospel. Jesus intended for this to be a gospel teachable moment for, his, for the disciples. And the lesson is twofold. First, salvation by faith demands humility. And second, good works are to be the result of salvation, not the basis of salvation. The thankful heart with all humility needs to understand both of these things. But let me explain a little further. We can see this lesson from the master beginning to unfold. Now, if we look back a little bit earlier in Luke 17, uh, we, we find there that after a series of extended teachings, going back even a couple of chapters further, we find in Luke 17, verse 5, the apostles say, Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus answers them saying, you only need a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit of faith and you really don't even have that. You see, he said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. It's as if he were saying, guys, your faith isn't even at mustard seed level. You're not getting it. You see, God does all the work. You just need to have that tiny bit of faith. God does all the heavy lifting. And then he hit them with this, this short parable. Hang, hang with me here for, for a couple minutes. This is important. <clears throat> which of you, he says in verse 7, Luke 17, verse 7, which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he was, has come in from the field, come immediately, sit down and eat. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things that were commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. The point is that the disciples, the Pharisees, the Samaritans, the ones who considered themselves keepers of the law, all had the wrong idea. I mean, their idea was that if they could follow the law, if they could get their lives to look good and to look proper, then everyone, including God, their master, would see that they were doing the right thing. And then God would see their good works and he'd be obligated to them. Their idea was that they would obey God and God would have to say thank you to them. That they would come in from the field to take from the parable and God would say, here, sit down, relax, take a load off. You've been working so hard. Here, let me turn the TV on for you. But Jesus is telling them that this is exactly the opposite of the kind of relationship that God has with man. Because that would be salvation by works, not by faith. The fundamental problem is that the uncleanliness that we have results from sin. And all humans are born with that particular disease. We are lepers, if you will, by birth. And there's nothing we can do to wipe the stain of the open sores and spreading disease from our souls. But God can cleanse us. God can make us whole. God can save us. But it takes a miracle. It takes the power of God, something only God can do. And when he does that miracle, it radically changes our relationship with him. Does it then mean that we don't have to keep the law? No. Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law. He taught that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart. We should love our neighbors as ourselves, honor our parents, keep pure from lust, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the sick. But above all, there's that shining truth that Jesus came to fulfill all the requirements of the law because we are incapable of doing it ourselves. And our response to this truth is ever to be one of humble faith we are to put our trust in what he has done, not in what we have done. The healing of a, the leper is a, is a picture of cleansing from sin, and his thanksgiving then becomes a picture of faith. The miracle of Jesus radically changes the relationship between Jesus and the leper. The leper's response, falling in worship at Jesus' feet, was an act of obedience to, to the law. For the law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I am the Lord your God, you shall worship me. But here's the key, key point here. This keeping of the law is not done by the leper to earn his cleansing. 
It is done in response to the cleansing. It is done out of a heart overflowing with thanksgiving. See, the leper's not coming in from plowing the fields and, and tending the sheep and expecting as a result of his hard labors to hear God say, thank you, here, sit down and eat. No. Although he was intent on going to the priests and keeping the law, despite the fact that he was a Samaritan, a descendant of the true keepers of the law, nevertheless, he made, he made that about face, that U-turn, and he gave worship to Jesus with the attitude of a humble servant. His actions reveal a heart that says, what? I am an unworthy slave. A heart that says, thank you, Jesus, for what you have done for me. I will go and do what you have commanded me to do, but I will go with joy and with thanksgiving in my heart because of what you have done for me. Okay, it's time to pull all this together. We're at uh, point number four. The idea is that thankfulness is our life's calling. Thankfulness is our life's calling. We've gotten a, a glimpse of the heart of thanksgiving. Now we need to con uh, consider how these characteristics of a thankful heart apply in a practical way. And as we do, we'll find that thankfulness is our life's calling. Let's work our way back through what we've talked about so far to understand what we should take away from this story. First of all, we've seen that if we desire to have a thankful heart, we need to have a humble, we need to be humble before God. We need to have a humble heart. Just as the leper recognized his physical disfigurement, we need to recognize our spiritual disfigurement. We need to recognize our sin. This applies today both to those who have already received the Lord Jesus as well as to those who have not. We all have sin that needs to be cleansed, and that will be true for each of us for as long as we walk this earth. With all humility, we need to confess this truth. We also need to acknowledge again in all humility that there are no good acts, no charitable deeds, no keeping of the law that we can do that will remove our spiritual disfigurement. This applies today to those who have not put their trust in Christ. If you're among that number, you need to understand that you are alienated from God because of your sin, just as the lepers were separated out from society because of their uncleanliness. Humility before God is required for you to admit that you have sinned and that nothing you are going to do, no service that you can render to God, will take away this uncleanliness and cause you to say thank you. Uh, and cause God to say thank you. God is not going to say thank you. I appreciate all the work you've done. You're okay in my book now. Come on in. Sit down and eat. That's not what's going to happen. You need God to do a miracle in your life. And for the believer, the believer in Christ has to be equally attuned to this truth. We need to realize that our good works are not going to earn a thank you from God either. See, we've been saved by grace, and you ought not to slip back into that quid pro quo mentality. You know the old, I messed up the other day when I told that lie, so now I need to mind my P's and Q's today. And the old kind of thinking, if I could only teach this Sunday school class or give that financial gift or, or go on that missions trip or, or pray for an hour a day or you fill in the blank. If I could only do something, then God would surely think more highly of me. That's not how God's spiritual economy works. When we obey, we've only done what was required of us. And the truth is, we can't even ever do that. We cannot fulfill the requirements of the law. But because Jesus has cleansed us, we need to humble our, ourselves at his feet and say thank you. And as we serve him faithfully, we need to continue to come in from the fields, properly clothe ourselves, and keep on serving him out of a heart of gratitude. That's what heaven is going to look like, as we sang earlier this morning. We need to have that same attitude even now. Our good works, our worship, must be done in response to God's grace with a heart full of thanksgiving. Second, we need to be alert to the manifest work of God in our lives. We really do need to do, as the old song says, count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God hath done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God hath done. You know, if you're like me, you say thank you all the time, but most of the time those words just kind of automatically roll off your lips, almost without thought or without feeling. We all need to, I need to, have a true heart of thanksgiving. I need to be alert. I need to wake up to the wonders of what God has done. And the only way to do that is to engage my brain, engage my heart, and to enumerate and meditate on God's many blessings. Notice that being alert 
to the blessings of God is a natural product of being humble before God. It's the humble heart, as I've said, that recognizes its need for cleansing and its inability to accomplish that cleansing. The humble heart knows that it was dead in trespasses and sins. And as it says in Ephesians 2, starting verse 4, that God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised, up, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And pause there for a second. Isn't that awesome? In ages to come, he will show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us. I can't wrap my mind around that. But the fact is, I was unclean. I was perverse. I was dead. And in ages to come, everyone's going to look at me and see how blessed I am and give glory to God and say, look how surpassingly rich is the grace of God. Am I regularly alert to these truths when I say thank you to God? Are you? About a month ago, something happened that helped me wake up to this a little bit more and how I should be alert to what God has done to save me. Maybe you heard this story reported in the news. A worker was replacing a, a roof atop an industrial building in New Jersey when the section of that roof he was standing on gave way. He fell through the roof and he dropped straight down into a vat of nitric acid 40 feet below. You hear that story? really grabbed me because I'm, I'm a chemist and I heard nitric acid. I said, oh boy. <clears throat> he broke a rib, he punctured a lung, and he was fully submerged in waist-deep acid for about a minute. Four work co-workers working on the ground floor rushed to save him. One of them waded into the acid vat and, pull, and the others helped to pull him out. The fallen worker appeared to be in a state of shock. He was airlifted to a hospital in critical condition with acid burns on his legs and his side. His rescuers were also treated for for burns, and they were released later that day. I haven't seen a recent update, but at least at that time, uh, the prognosis was good that everyone would make a full recovery. And the man who waded into the acid to save his coworker was, of course, being lauded as a hero. Now, when I heard this, I imagined myself being the man who fell. I imagined coming to my senses some hours after that accident to find myself alive, receiving medical care and and on the way to recovery. And at that point, it would start to hit home. I had been helpless to save myself. My life depended completely on the compassion and self-sacrificial action of someone else. So how do I respond to that man who waded into the acid, risking himself to save me? Were Were it not for him, I would have drowned in the acid. Were it not for him, my children would be fatherless. What do I say? What do I do? Do a thousand thank yous even begin to communicate my gratitude? As I thought about this, I realized that from that day forward, for the rest of my life, my relationship with this man would be radically different. From that day forward, for the rest of my life, I would owe, in some sense, every breath, every meal, every sunrise, every smile, every moment to this man. He had become my hero. How can I begin to say thank you to my hero? This morning, we need to recognize And be alert to the fact that, just as the leper was, that Jesus is our hero. He saved us from something much more terrible than leprosy or drowning in acid. We need to remember what it cost him to save us. And we need to understand the amazing heavenly riches that he has saved us to. We need to recognize every moment, every breath, every meal as a gift from his merciful hand. We need to continually remain alert to all the wonderful things that God has given and done. Two more quick applications. First of all, we need to give thanks to God because he superintends. And we need to give thanks in all things because he superintends. As we've just seen, God has blessed us mightily. At the same time, we know that life brings many trials and tribulations. Even that old hymn, Count Your Blessings, also says, are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy? you are called to bear. But Paul tells us, give thanks in all things. How can we give thanks when we are beset by trials, big and small? From something as simple as a head cold to significant challenges like chronic pain or disease or or tragedies like the death of a loved one. I feel inadequate to answer such a question, 
about the Apostle Paul, who I dare say bore a heavier cross than any of us ever will, tells us that God causes all things to work together for good. Paul found his comfort in the fact that God superintends all things. I came across a more recent example of this, of understanding that God is in sovereign control over all things and how that enables us to give thanks even in the face of tragedy. I was reading a bio- the biography of Rick Husband. He was one of the astronauts who died aboard the space shuttle Columbia. Maybe you remember that back in 2003 when it, it broke up during re-entry. The author of the biography was, is Rick's wife. Her name is Evelyn. <clears throat> and she tells how two weeks before the launch, during the last weekend that Rick was, was home, they discovered that their daughter, Laura, had head lice. Evelyn recounts how they had this long list of errands that they needed to get done before Rick could fly to Florida to to get on the launch. They had to do things like buy groceries, make sure the cars were working, uh, check the family finances, make sure everything was in order. There were all these last-minute things they had to do. But when they found out that their daughter had lice, they had to put everything else on hold, bag and wash sheets, blankets, pillows, and They had to treat Laura's head and hair. Now Rick, the astronaut, responded with tremendous grace. Uh, He washed Laura's hair with a special shampoo and painstakingly combed through it in small sections with a special comb to remove the uh, egg lice, the lice eggs. It took him five hours to do this job. And he did it with love and with gentleness. And he reassured Laura that she didn't need to be embarrassed and that everything would, would be just fine. And I just want to read a small section here of what Evelyn wrote. She writes, I had been working on giving thanks for everything, but found it difficult to thank God for Laura's head lice. How could anyone be thankful for that? Then I felt as if the Lord was saying, I gave Laura five uninterrupted hours with her dad. I was laid low by that because I thought how lovingly Rick had attended to Laura and how differently I would have handled it. He was patient. He loved on her. He edified her. He told her how beautiful she was. They would not have had that time together were it not for the lice. Our list of things to do that day would never have allowed it. We never got to any of the items on our our list, but who cares? God gave us a blessing instead. And after Rick's death, Evelyn realized all the more how precious that blessing in Laura's life, those lice, turned out to be. Despite the tragedy that followed, Evelyn still gives thanks to God for those lice. I think we need to continually pray that God would give us eyes to see, whether it be head lice or even leprosy. He superintends all things for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. And that truth is a very firm foundation for a thankful heart. And this brings me to my final point. We need to understand that it is God who makes our hearts thankful. We can give thanks to him only by the strength of his might. When disaster strikes, when things don't go our way, when, when people die, when we are laughed at or looked down on because of Jesus, we still ought to be thankful. Remember, just as the leper was dependent upon God to heal him, so we are dependent upon God to save us. And part of that saving involves the gradual work in our hearts of sanctification. And part of that sanctification involves growing a thankful heart. While we are responsible to be alert to God's blessings and to respond hum- uh, with humility, We are not left on our own to drum up thankfulness by our own willpower. Just that it is is the power of God that saves us, so it is the power of God that energizes our gradual transformation into conformity with the image of Christ. Right after Paul says in in Romans 8.28 that God causes all things to work together for good, he says in Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. You see, once God begins that good work in us, he is faithful and he will bring it to completion. And it is because this, of this comp- uh, completing action depends on God that Paul prays, for example, uh, for the Ephesians. And he prays for the Ephesians, asking God to strengthen them with power through his spirit in the inner man so that what? So that they would be able to comprehend God's great love for them. So this shows that we need God's power in us to grow that true heart of thanksgiving. Do you want to have a thankful heart like that leper? You do need to work at it. But before you set about cleaning the outside of the cup only, remember that it needs to start on the inside. To be truly thankful, the heart needs to be changed. And that's something only God can do.
Have you been washed clean by the power of God? Has God sovereignly superintended the events of your life to let you hear and respond to his good news? Are you alert to all the myriad blessings he has bestowed on you? Have you responded in humility to him? Does your spiritual heart go lub-dub, lub-dub with thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord? May God fill us with his spirit so that we are bubbling over with thanksgiving. And as, as we close our time together, we're going to do something just a little bit different. As Tim comes up, um, we're going to have some time for you to respond by offering thanksgiving to God. And we'll have a chance to do that just in a minute. So I want you to start thinking. We're going to sing the closing hymn together, O Glorious Day. And there's a reason I picked that hymn, because it very poignantly enumerates all we have to be thankful for. It talks about God's great love for us, God's great power over sin and over death. It talks about Jesus becoming a man, his incarnation, how he fulfilled the law, how he suffered, how he died, how he was buried and rose again. It talks about God's forgiveness, our justification, our freedom in Christ. It's all, it's all in there. So I want you to start thinking now, what are you thankful for? Maybe there's some specific, something specific that the Lord is bringing to your mind. If you would like to share that with us and declare publicly your, th- your thankfulness to God, I would like you to come down here to the front as we sing that first verse. So we're going to sing the first verse, and after the first verse, we'll pause for, uh, and first verse and chorus, we'll pause for a minute, and uh, we'll have uh, four or five. It's going to be first come, first serve, okay? <laughs> Um, so, so that we're not here too, too long. I've already been too long, right? Um, <clears throat> so four or five of you can come down and, uh, and we'll sing the hymn and uh, we'll pause to hear some testimonies of thanksgiving and then we'll finish singing the hymn.